You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. All right, that is a great way to start a service, is it not? Um, it's a, we will find more hope than that in the scriptures this morning. But I started with that for a reason. As difficult as it is to listen to the words of Hitler, especially at church on Sunday morning, um, there is something in that speech and in his character and in the things that he did that we find in the book of Esther. We find time and time again throughout history, the adversary of our souls rises up against the church and God's people and tries to destroy the witness of God's people from the planet tries to eradicate time and time again. We see that in the book of Esther this morning. I'd like to give a brief recap for those of you that have been absent or have just forgotten uh, where we've been going and what we've been doing. Always good. Here's the brief recap, okay? Um, In Esther chapter 1, we learn that Xerxes is a Xerxes king, right? He was mean. He liked to womanize. He was a drunk. Um, We learned that his kingdom was ruled by sin because he was a sinner. Uh, We learned also that Jesus is a greater king than Xerxes and that Jesus' kingdom is ruled by grace. So we have this compare and contrast of two different kings, two different kingdoms. That was chapter 1. Chapter 2, we learned that Esther started off as an ungodly person in sin, just like us before we met Jesus. We realize that throughout the book, she grows into a godly woman. We learn that God loves you just as you are. It doesn't matter what you're done, what you're doing, where you are, where you have been. God loves you, but he grows you to become more like him. So in Esther chapter 2, we talked about that process of growth to become more like God. Now, we, we haven't spent time in Esther chapter 3, and we're going to be in Esther chapter 4 today. But I need to kind of give you some history on Esther chapter 3, otherwise that Hitler thing is going to be totally out of context. So here's what we need to know about Esther chapter 3. There's this guy named Mordecai. He's Esther's cousin, right? Um, Adopted father. This is how it worked. Um, He adopted Esther. He became adopted dad slash cousin. Anyway, there's a man named Haman who works for the king, king's right-hand man. He has all the power and the authority of the king, and so people are supposed to bow to him. Well, in a I don't know, a power battle or a moment of pride, or maybe Mordecai is now starting to wrestle with the fact that he's a Jew and he doesn't want to bow to someone who's not God. Haman comes into town and everyone bows to their knees and Mordecai is the only dude standing. Day in and day out. Haman comes through town, everyone bows except Mordecai. And you can imagine that Haman is a little frustrated with that. Mordecai just will not bow. Day in and day out, it's embarrassing for Haman because he's a man who loves power. So Haman gets mad. Mordecai doesn't bow. Haman gets really mad. Haman realizes that Mordecai is a Jew living in Susa. And he goes, well, I don't like Mordecai. Therefore, I don't like any Jews. Therefore, king, I have a great idea. Xerxes, I'm going to pay you a sum of money so that you will write a law against the Jews. And basically what happened here is Xerxes received cash, a bribe from Haman, and Xerxes wrote a decree that all Jews were sentenced to death. And this decree was sent out to every single nation in the known world. Because remember, Xerxes' kingdom 
was the known world of the day. And so every single nation got this decree on a specific day at a specific time in the near future. All non-Jews are to rise up against Jews and kill them. Men, women, children, everyone. A day of genocide was set. Now behind all this is Satan. Behind all this is a great adversary of our souls who wants to wipe out God's people. And he does it with sin in the garden and he does it with Sodom and Gomorrah. He did it in Egypt with the Pharaoh. He did it in Babylon with the exile. He does it with Susa and Xerxes. He um, did it with Herod and the murder of all the babies to and under when Jesus was born. It's why there was persecution in the early church and it's why there's martyrdom today. Because the adversary of our souls does not want God's people to exist. He wants God's people to have fear about being God's people. He wants them to be quiet and not say anything about Jesus. And time and time again, we'll see people rise in power against God's people. We see that with Hitler this morning. But we need to recognize that our power um, or our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities and spirits, Satan and demons. The whole kid and caboodle of people who don't love Jesus are against the people who love Jesus. There are two kingdoms colliding. Darkness declaring war on light. And this is where we find Esther chapter 3 and Esther chapter 4. That there is this great battle about to ensue where all of the known world is commanded by the king to go kill the Jewish countrymen that they live next to, that they um, hang out with, that they don't really have a problem with. So there's this confusion in a nation. What do we do? We can't disobey the king, but we have to do what the king says. And so now we get to join Mordecai and Esther um, in Esther chapter 4, and we get to see what happens in the fallout of this decree for genocide for the Jews. So if you would uh, flip to Esther chapter 4, we're going to read the entire chapter because it is beneficial to read the word of God aloud. Um, it does not return void, and so we read it proudly. We'll start with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, we recognize uh, that as we read your word this morning, we're looking for your your word to us. Um, you wrote Esther. Um, it's in the Bible. There's something in here for us this morning. It's not a, a book we can read and ignore, but it's a book that we read and say, what truth in here would you have us apply to our lives this morning, Lord? What is there in this chapter that you want to speak to our heart and mind? And Lord, I pray that you would make that abundantly clear to each one of us this morning. Lord, that as we read and as we listen and as we study, you'd speak to us and say, oh, I love you as you are, but I want you to become more like me, and here's how. Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to you this morning as we read, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai had learned all that had been done, meaning the decree that Xerxes had written, Mordecai tore all of his clothes and put on a sackcloth and ashes. He went into the middle of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in a sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews. There was fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them were in sackcloths and ashes. And Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her this. The queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai, that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. 
Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs that had been appointed to attend her, ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn why this was and why he was mourning. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. When Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said, then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king in the inner court without being called, there is but one law, and that is to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, Esther says, I've not been called to come into the king for 30 days. Then they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, this is text messaging in, you know, the ancient Near East, okay? Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do you not think that you will, uh, do you not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews? If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews for another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews that are found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will do so as well. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I will perish. Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered them. I love this chapter because in a book that while it's in the Bible, doesn't talk about sacrifice, doesn't talk about prayer, doesn't talk about um, the temple, doesn't talk about God. There's nothing in here that you'd look at it and go, yes, clearly this is a book of the Bible for God's people to read. Um, it really is a book of the Bible for God's people to read. And Esther chapter 4 starts to reveal some very interesting things to us about God and his providence. Um, we're going to go through this chunk by chunk this morning. First, Mourning Mordecai. Mordecai is mourning in the first half of this chapter. Why? Well, he just found out he's going to die. How many of you, if you got a letter in the mail that said, on such and such day, someone's going to come to your house and it's going to not go well for you or your family, you would mourn, would you not? You would be angry, would you not? There would be some sort of, wait a minute, I, I'm not even sure why this is happening. Well, it's because a guy didn't bow. That's why it was happening back in the day. Mordecai mourned publicly, mostly naked. In the tradition of the day, he stripped off all of his clothes, and he put on rough burlap, like very rough, painful material. It would rub your skin raw. And ashes, he put them all over his body. You see this in the book of Job as well when he was mourning. He put ashes all over his body. Um, he cried out loud publicly due to this death sentence because he wasn't going to go silently, Right? He got the death notification, and he's like, I'm not going silently. The whole world is going to know of the injustice that is going on. He cries out because he's going to die. It's written in a king's decree that can't be reversed. But there's also this, um, this idea that perhaps he's crying out because he realizes the choices that has put him in this place. Up to this point, Mordecai has been living as a Jew in a pagan society. 
So is Esther. So is all of the Jewish nation. They've been living not worshiping God. They've been living far from God's people and God's precepts. And I think this is the point when he realized the weight of his sin. Perhaps all of the stories that he had been told as a child growing up as a Jew, worshiping. Perhaps all of those things that he'd remembered in the back of his head about God and God's law and God's covenant. God's judgment upon those that turned their back on him was coming back to the forefront of his mind. And he remembered some of the patriarchs and the covenants that say, listen, follow me and it will go well for you and don't follow me and it will not go well for you. And in this moment when he gets the death decree and he rips his clothes off, puts sackcloth on, he is mourning because he realizes not just is he on the path for death, but he has wronged God. I think there's a weight here. We're starting to see something in Mordecai change. He's realizing not only is he going to die, but his choices put him there. He chose to stay in Susa. He chose to ignore the commands of God. And because of that, he's going to die with his entire nation. And then in verse 3, the other Jews joined in, right? The whole nation of God lamenting over the death that was coming their way and the choices that had put them in this place. And we need to look at this and realize this is the proper pose for someone who sinned. Ripping off your clothing, putting a sackcloth and ashes on, completely changing your countenance and your behavior. This is the proper pose for someone whose eyes and heart have been opened to the sin and the weight of their sin and the penalty of death that follows sin. And before God, we must all realize this is the only response for our sin. While we might not actually rip off our clothes and rub ashes all over our body and go to the city center and cry out loud, the attitude of our heart is one that we must be humbled. When we realize the weight of our sin and the penalty that is really coming at us because of our sin, we cry out, woe is us, because we deserve that death that's coming for our sin. We deserve the weight of the penalty of the wrath of God upon us. And that's where Mordecai is, mourning that he did not follow God, that he is in the place wherein sin overtook an entire nation, and now they are sentenced to death. So he's out there in the city gates, publicly crying out, Woe is me, look at what the king has done, look at the decree that's been written, we are about to die, woe is me, woe is me. It's kind of like big news. So if you would imagine someone doing that in downtown Ketchikan, like the news reporters would show up, right? Um, and you'd get the newspaper folks, and you'd get the, um, the 5 o'clock news folks that would come up with their video cameras, because the crazy person is half naked in the street, covered in ashes, crying out about the death that's coming his direction. So we've got this very public spectacle at the entrance to the palace. And Esther hears of this commotion, and she sends fine linens to Mordecai, saying, here, clothe yourself so that you can come in and speak to me, because you're kind of gross right now, and you can't come into the presence of the king as you are. It's not allowed. So here, put on fine linens and come in. And uh, Mordecai can't put on the suit. Um, he's too distressed. He's too distressed to put on the suit. And imagine, just for a moment, imagine you're Mordecai. And you're, you're literally wrecked because of what's going on in your life right now. So wrecked that you're okay being mostly naked in public, covered in burlap and ash. And then your cousin sends you this fine linen cloth to wear so that you can come into the presence of royalty and explain what's going on. But there's all these reporters around you. And there's a whole crowd gathering to hear what you're talking about. And if you stop and put on fine linen like everything's okay and you march into the palace... 
That's going to send a mixed signal. Mordecai says, no, there's something bigger going on here. I'm not going to put on these fine linens. We'll communicate in a different way. Esther, though, still had no idea what was going on. She was a Jew, right, in as much as anyone else in the nation at the time was a Jew. She had the death sentence on her head because she was Jewish, but she didn't know that yet. She was living in the palace in the life of luxury. She was removed from the suffering of her people. And she had no idea that there was a death sentence for her adopted father, that there was a death sentence for her and for 15 million of her countrymen that were about to be murdered. And, you know, the little insight here is that leaders don't always know everything. Sometimes it takes someone in the crowd to tell the leader what's going on. Communication is important in the family of God. And so this communication, um, text messages, emails, um, carrier pigeon communication continued between Esther and Mordecai. She was sending out her eunuch to him to get a message to come back, to get a message to go back, back and forth and back and forth. And in this communication, we start to see not only is Mordecai mourning, but Esther's making excuses. Esther's making some excuses because in verses 6 and and 7, we see the public place. People are gathering, the news reporters are there, half-naked wailing Mordecai, and he's having a conversation with the queen's assistant, publicly explaining what went on, publicly explaining to the queen's assistant, Haman, an assistant of the king, paid lots of money so that all the Jews could be murdered because I wouldn't bow before him because I'm a Jew. Publicly, on the 7 o'clock news, it's kind of like a scandal. We see this in the news all the time, right? Politician does something wrong, tries to play it off really well. The news reporters get the right angle, and all of a sudden you see something exposed. Well, here's Mordecai, the whistleblower. He's mourning what's going on, and he says, I'm not going to... I can't let this happen. Here's what really happened. Here's the down low on what happened. The guy that you bow down and worship every day as king's assistant, he paid a great sum of money so that you could all be killed. And if you're not a Jew, you need to understand that he paid a great sum of money so that your neighbors and your children's friends and all of the people that you work with and love could be killed. This is unacceptable. Let you hear what is going on. And so Mordecai had gotten a copy of this written decree, right? Because it had been passed out. And he maybe tore it down from a power pole or a wall or somewhere. And he took it and he handed it to Esther's servant after reading it out loud. And this last-ditch effort in 8 and 9, he said, Listen, Esther, go tell Esther you're the queen. You're married to the king who wrote this law. You can do something about this. You can be an intercessor for your people in this time of need. You can go to the king. He's your husband. You can, like, walk in and say, hey, hubby, how's it going? You know that law that you wrote? Can you do something about it? He says, please, would you? This is the only hope we have if you in the palace would take care of this. He begged her to do this. And then she said this in 10 and 12. I want to do that, but it's dangerous. Like, I could die. I could could get my head chopped off if I do what you're asking me to do. And there's this struggle we start to see in Esther here because she's a queen, but she's not acting like one. She's still growing to be more like God, but she's not quite there yet. 
And so she says, oh, my, all my people, my family are going to be killed. I'm, I'm going to be killed too if the king finds out I'm a Jew. But, but if I don't do something, then my entire nation will be killed. But if I do do something, I could be killed. And if you were in that position, there would be this, what do I do? What do I do? I know the right thing to do, but I'm too scared to do the right thing. And this is when faith takes action. This is what faith really is. Faith is action in the face of opposition. Do you trust God enough to do what you need to do, even if the outcome could be devastating? She's looking at her situation saying, okay, the only way to get the king to reverse Haman's decree is I need to go before the king. But the problem is, I know my husband, and he sits on this great throne, and he has a legion of guards that guard him, and that if you walk into the throne room, and he doesn't extend his golden scepter to you, then the guards rush at you and chop your head off. And I'm not sure that I want to risk that. So, she was facing difficulty. And we need to put this in historical perspective, too. It's not just that we think this king was a jerk. But there are actual Persian stone tablets that have been unearthed that show Xerxes sitting on his throne with a soldier behind his throne that was holding a large axe. These stone tablets were put up around the palace and around the area where the king lived because he wanted them to know, don't bother me when I'm on my throne. If you bother me while I'm on my throne... Axes will get you. Xerxes the Xerxes had an axes, and he would use it if people interrupted him. He liked to sit on his throne in peace. And so here's Esther going on, married to this man. He's not a great husband. He's not a great leader. He's going to kill my people, and I've got to do something about it. And so God starts to work in her, and this is a pivotal moment for Esther and her core development in Christ. While she's not yet met Christ, as we would say in the New Testament, God is working on her. And she decides to do something in faith. She decides to do something that's contrary to what her flesh wants her to do. And so she says this, um, <clears throat> I'm willing to go do this even though it will risk my life. Verses 13 and 14, they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai replied to Esther, listen, don't think that you're not going to be found out. Don't think that you're above this just because you live in the palace. Um, and here, um, Mordecai is perhaps threatening Esther. He's the only one that knows she's a Jew. He's the only one that could reveal her status unless she chooses to reveal it. And so he's saying, listen, don't think you're, you're outside of this judgment. Um, you need to do something. There's a little threat here. Mordecai says, if they kill all the Jews, you're Jewish, they'll kill you too. But the only way that would happen is if the king found out she was Jewish. And it's not necessarily that he's trying to manipulate the situation, but frankly, that's not a very nice thing for an adopted dad to say to his daughter, right? She's under a lot of pressure. She's trying to figure out what to do as a queen, and her adopted father is saying, listen, the only way they're going to kill you is if someone tells on you, and don't think you'll escape this judgment. I'll put the pressure on you, Esther. Something has to be done now. You are here for a reason, is what Mordecai says. He says, listen, um, don't think that you are above this, but also um, you exist for a reason. You are queen for a reason. And this is where we start to see 
God's hand at work. Verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. This is the first time in the book of Esther that we see the idea of God working deliverance. It may not be really out there in a neon sign, God's hand is at work, but why else would he say deliverance will arise from somewhere else? Where is his hope coming from other than the full complement of the Old Testament up to this point where God has promised, listen, I will deliver my people. I will raise up a deliverer for them. If they follow me, if they turn and they pray and they repent, I will hear their prayer and I will redeem them and I will heal their land. Time and time again in the Old Testament, God promises, follow me and I will deliver you. I will deliver my people. I will deliver my people over and over and over again. And here, out of nowhere, a Jew who has not subscribed to Jewish tradition for time and time and time suddenly says, listen, Esther, if you keep silent, someone else will be raised up to save God's people. We are God's people is what he is saying. We are different than everyone else. We love God. We worship God. We will start doing that. God will deliver us. He's faithful in that. He suddenly gets faith. And as he has that conversation with Esther, he intercedes this. Deliverance will come from another place if you fail to rise up. You and your household might perish, but God will still deliver his people. But who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I mean, we look at the book of Esther and it's a book of seemingly random chances. She was just the most beautiful girl. She just happened to win the contest. She just happened to become queen. Haman just happened to do this and so-and-so just happened to do that. Or we can look at the book of Esther and say, God's invisible hand of providence was working something so that the deliverance of the nation of Israel could be seen. And these people who were captive by sin in a pagan land could be set free from that and worship God again. And so in verses six, 15 and 16, um, we start to see this change in Esther. And there's preparation for a mediation. And remember, a mediator, an intercessor, is someone that goes in and intercedes for someone else. Someone's about to die and an intercessor comes in and says, you really shouldn't kill them because... Dot, dot, dot. And Esther is starting to prepare here. She's beginning to mature in her role as queen. She doesn't just exist to please the whims of a sinful king anymore. She sees her role as more than just eye candy at the banquets. She's beginning to see herself as a child of the king, the true king, the one king. She serves a higher king than Xerxes... And because of that, she knows that she can do something for her people. She's demonstrating a new and growing faith, and so she decides to take action and intercede for herself and her father adopted and her people. Regardless of what will happen, she's going to go into the throne room of the king. She, um, she says these brave words. <clears throat> um, I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Modern-day missionaries say that. I'll go to a closed country, and I'll preach the gospel, and if I perish, I perish. But I'm going to go make God known. I'm going to go do what's right. I'm going to do what God wants me to do, regardless of the opposition I face. I have to do what God wants me to do. I have to do what's right under the law and under grace. I have to do 
what God is compelling me to do. Whether or not I die, I'm going to do this. And so she sends message to Mordecai, institute a three-day fast for all of the Jewish people, and I'm going to do that with my women here in the inner court. And she did this to prepare for mediation. Because if you're about to do something really difficult, you need to take some time and prepare yourself, right? To shore yourself up, to maybe breathe a little bit and receive some encouragement. She is about to do something difficult and potentially very costly and yet incredibly beneficial for very many people. And so knowing that she was about to endeavor on that, she pulled close her friends and she received strength from them. And then in verse 17, Mordecai and the people of Israel did what the queen had commanded. The queen is no longer someone who is told what to do. She's no longer the person who is determined, go here and do this, enter this contest, sleep with the king for a night, you're going to be eye candy for the rest of your life. She's no longer determining her life by what people tell her. She's saying, no, I serve a higher authority, I serve God, I need to do what's right, and now she starts to act like it. She starts to give commands, and the first command she gives is gather yourselves together as a nation, fast. Now, it doesn't say pray. She's not telling them, gather together and intercede to God for me. She's not saying, gather together and worship God and pray for me. She's not saying those things. All she's saying is, gather yourselves together as a nation. Just be together. Fast. For three days, three nights. No food, no water. And this, um, this is important because the nation of Israel did gather together in support of their queen, they knew she was the only one who at that point in time in history could do something for their people. Um, <clears throat> and this might be the first time in Esther we see church. It might not be church like we see it, because we gather together and we worship and we pray and we sing songs, we take communion, we celebrate the Passover in the New Testament sense. They weren't necessarily gathering together to do those things, but baby steps in faith, Right? Sometimes it's little steps that get you where you're going. You don't automatically become an awesome Jesus follower overnight. Though God can do that in your life, and he does do that with people, more often than not, there's this growth progress. There's this, I've lived this way, and today I'm, I'm just going to trust God, and, and that's going to be my first step. Maybe tomorrow he'll work on those habits that need to be changed. Maybe the next week I'll start reading my Bible more. Maybe the next week I'll start attending church or a small group. But right now, my simple step in faith is just, I'm going to gather together with God's people. And that's where the nation of Israel is in Susa. We're just going to gather together. We're going to do a little holy huddle, and we're going to hold tight to one another, and we're going to see what God is going to do, because we don't have any other hope but in Esther at this moment. She's our only hope. We'll gather together, and we'll not eat, not drink, and we'll think about her. And so you see this picture of church starting to develop, a nation of Israel starting to be redeemed. And then in the castle, you see Esther doing the same thing with her women. So you've got the big church and you've got a small group, right? And this is maybe how God wants us to live. Big church together, small group intimacy. We gather strength and encouragement from a big fellowship. And together we can be intimate in a small group, sharing our struggles, receiving encouragement. And here it is played out in the book of Esther, a very New Testament, book of Acts type of thinking. And they didn't have anything else but each other. And so they started to form community, community God loves. 
So we've got this, this book so far. We've got this genocide, and we've got people gathering together. And this portion of the epic of Esther um, has snippets of the story of Christ woven in it. We couldn't just stop here and go, great, they gathered together and they're not really worshiping God yet. They're taking the first step, but now what? If we just leave it here, we're missing half the story. You guys ever listen to Paul Harvey on the radio? And that is the rest of the story, right? So that's what we're about to get this morning, the rest of the story. Um, let's reread this story next to Christ, shall we? Because this is very fascinating. Um, we are all sinners, are we not? We've all sinned, Scripture says, transgressed the holiness of God. Therefore, um, we have made choices that have put us in the path of the wrath of God. I love it when things rhyme. Preachers love that. We are in the path of the wrath of God with our sin. We deserve death for our sin. It says so in Scripture. The penalty of sin, the wages of sin, is death. Right? There's a second half of the verse. That's the rest of the story. We'll get to that in a moment, right? Do you have an attitude like Mordecai? Where you look at the weight of your sin and the death that's coming for you? And do you wail before God for your sin? Or do you go, yeah, I sinned. I don't really feel the weight of it. I don't really feel like I transgressed a holy God. Sin, eh, no big deal. That was just a tiny sin. Or do you wrestle with it like Mordecai did and go, oh, Lord, Oh, I can't, I can't live without you anymore. I have wronged you in so many ways. I can see my death. It is imminent because of the choices that I have made. In our sinful state, we are like, Scripture says, filthy rags before God. He detests our sin. Not us, but our sin. And when we are covered in sin, we are not allowed in his presence. Just as Mordecai, covered in ashes and burlap, couldn't come into the presence of royalty... And there was this conflict between a Persian kingdom and the people of God. And death was the decree. And all Mordecai could do was stand outside the gate where he was not permitted in and cry out. He needed a mediator. He needed someone to intercede for him and his people. He needed someone to say, no, not death, but life. Esther was his only chance. Esther was the Jew's only chance for life, and Jesus is ours. Just as the Jews were betrayed by Haman for 10,000 pieces of silver, Jesus also, our great mediator, was sold to death for 30 pieces of silver by Judas. Do you see how God works his story? You see snippets of Christ's life in the Old Testament. God's people sold into death, and we were seeing our Savior sold to death by silver. The record of our sin was applied to Jesus on the cross. He was sold not to his own death, right? Because he's sinless. He was sold to our death. The death that we deserved, Jesus was sold into, and he took willingly. The record of our sin was applied to him, and then Jesus, wearing the weight of our sin on his body, the rags of filth that we created with our own heart, our own hands. He proceeded into the throne room of God wearing all of the nastiness of our sin. Where he shouldn't go because death is the penalty if you wear sin into the throne room of God. And he walked covered in our sin into the throne room and took the death that we deserved 
so that we did not have to. Esther was willing to trust God and risk death for her people. If I perish, I perish. If I have to die to save my people, that's what I'll do. And that's what Esther said, but that's also what Jesus did. If I have to die for my people, I will die for my people. And Esther didn't die for her people. Jesus died for his people. Jesus is a better mediator than Esther. Just as Esther spent three days fasting with her people, abstaining from food and drink, preparing to approach the king, Jesus gathered his community together, and he said, will you pray for me? Will you pray with me? I am about to do something very difficult for you. Come pray with me in the garden. I need community now. I need encouragement now. And then, just as Esther and her people fasted for three days, Jesus, after death, fasted from life for three days and three nights, abstaining from life so that we don't have to abstain from life. He took death and fasted life so that we could have life abundantly. Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days with his spirit and with his closest disciples. Then he fasted from life for three days. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave. And in doing so, he removed the decree of death, the one that was bound to your heart and soul by your sin. He took that away from you, crumpled it up and said, this is rubbish. You now have my life. You have life eternal forever and always. Your sin doesn't count against you anymore. I died for it. You no longer have a death sentence. Take off your rags and be renewed in me. And now he sits in heaven with all glory and honor. And guess what? He's continually mediating for you, continually interceding for you. And when you struggle with sin, he pleads for you to obey in the Spirit. He sends the Spirit to aid you. And he tells God the Father, that one's mine. I know that one. They might be struggling, but that one's mine, covered by my blood. I love that one. That one gets in. That one's mine. Big hug. And you see me, God, not their sin. That's what Jesus is doing for you right now. Jesus is a better mediator than Esther. And that's why it says in 1 Timothy, there is one God and one mediator, just like there was one mediator for the Jews to Xerxes, who was Esther. There's one mediator for us. And that mediator between God and man is Christ Jesus. He became a man to mediate, to reconcile, to intercede between sinful man and holy God. And the whole story of Esther shows us the plight that we're in, that we carry the weight of sin until God lifts it and removes it from us. And when you read the story of Esther, you need to ask yourself certain questions, and here's what they are. Apart from the grace of God, how are you like Xerxes? How are you striving for control and power and fame and comfort and glory and luxury? How much do you protect your own private space and you don't let people in? Apart from the grace of God, how are you like Haman? You like to be in charge. You like to be obeyed. If someone dishonors you, you cut them out of your life. And if you could do away with them and their family forever, you would. Apart from the grace of God, how are you like Mordecai? Kind of a coward. Kind of a quiet believer. Someone who's not really public with their faith. Someone who's really not sure if they want to do the right thing. 
but then there's hope because Jesus is your perfection and Jesus can help you make progress like he helped Mordecai. Apart from the grace of God, how are you like Esther? Someone who, yes, the circumstances of your life would give you plenty of excuse to justify disobedience, plenty of excuse to justify lukewarmness. But by the grace of God, Esther changed. And by the grace of God, he will help you make progress. You, because of Jesus, can have perfection and progress that Jesus promises. There is so much hope in the book of Esther. In a book where God is not mentioned, there is an abundance of hope and redemption and deliverance and salvation and joy and that progress of sanctification, just the little steps. That's all God says you have to do. You don't have to take a leap. Just look in his direction and he does the rest. There is so much hope. And just as they hoped in Esther, we hope in God. Just as they hoped in Esther, we hope in Jesus. And so I will close with these statements on why Jesus is a better mediator. And you can close your eyes and listen to this and you think about Jesus. Esther identified with her people by disclosing her race. She said she was a Jew. But Jesus identifies us with us by joining our race. He doesn't just identify with us by claiming name. He actually became flesh to identify with us. Esther went to King Xerxes on his throne, but King Jesus got off his throne and came to us. Esther only had access to the king once, but Jesus gives us continual access to the throne of God. Esther's cousin Mordecai couldn't conceal his grief, but Jesus actually sweated blood in anguish for us. Esther's cousin Mordecai trusted salvation would come, quote, from another place. And Jesus, our great God and Savior, came from another place. He came from heaven to earth. Esther served as mediator between her people and Xerxes. Jesus serves as mediator between God and his people. Esther was willing to die for her people, but Jesus actually died for his people. And now he's actually alive. For his people. He's alive and seated on a throne. And so what we're going to do now as the team comes up to lead us in worship is we're going to sing praises to the God who delivers. We're going to sing to our king who's alive and seated on a throne and interceding for us right now in this very moment. So I'll tell you this. Um, we're going we're gonna to sing to our God who does not have a decree of death against us. He has a decree of life for us. Death is erased in Christ. And so if we will just close in a word of prayer, we will put our hearts before the Lord and say, we choose life, not death this morning, Lord. We choose Christ, not sin this morning. Father, we give you thanks for interceding for us. Interceding for us, Father. Do we even know the weight of what those words mean? That we actually had a death sentence on our head, Father. We were actually meant for the gallows. And you came in on the scene and you said, nope, if they would just but look my direction, if they would just but look at me, I am raised high above them and I will die a death for them. I will wear their filthy rags and God will look upon me and pour out the full wrath of his judgment on me alone. 
and the wrath will be absorbed by me. And flowing from me will come grace and love for people who need it. Lord, your death was for us. Your blood covers us and all of our sin. And your arms are open wide for us this morning. Father, if there's those of us here that need to confess a sin, have it covered by your blood, would you speak to them now in this moment and have them do so? you need to trust in Christ for the first time this morning, would you do so? Christ's arms are open wide. You have no judgment. You just have grace. If you carry a burden that's too great for you because choices have been made for you and you don't know where you're going to go from the situation that you're in, all you have to do is look at Christ. He is your salvation. He will grow you to be more like him, to stand strong in his name. And he will continually cover you with grace and mercy from his throne, where he sits, loving you, right in this very moment. No judgment, only grace. We're thankful, Father, for a great mediator in Jesus. And now we stand and we sing praises to him for what he's done in our lives. All the glory to you, Jesus. All the glory. Amen. Isn't it good to know that we have a Savior God who is with us today and with us tomorrow and was with us yesterday and he's done all the work and all we have to do is just bask in his presence. This morning, that's the hope that I have for you guys, for my own life, for the life of my family, for my children, and even for my family who doesn't yet know the Lord. I know that Christ already died for them. And that the only thing they have to do is just look his direction. Isn't that good news? That we don't have to do anything other than just say hi, and God has done the rest. Um, I'm going to close with just a couple brief announcements, and then we'll uh, scoot on our way to lunch. Uh, If you have your worship bulletin still with you this morning, um, there are a few things to take note of in the backside. Uh, You can take a look at all the things we got going on. We'd like to point out that we've got a kids' movie night coming up on August 30th. We're looking for some food donations to feed the little ones as they come. You can head to the wall right after church. There are actual take-home images of the food, like clip art versions of hot dogs, potato chips. Sign your name on the paper. Let us know what you're bringing. Take one of those items home so that you remember. That's what you're bringing. It's got the date on there as well. And also, men, men's retreat is coming up. Uh, We would like you to register so that we know how to provide transportation adequately. So if you are coming to men's retreat, see... Jason, Dennis, or myself, we will hook you up with all the information you need to know. That's about all I have for you guys, so I'm going to say this. Go and know that you have been interceded for, that you are currently being interceded for, and that you will always be interceded for by Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go and share that with someone today.